Hi, I'm Mark Scott, Secretary of the New South Wales Department of Education, and welcome to Every Student, the podcast where I get to introduce you to some of our great leaders in education. It's great to be in conversation with Stacey Quince. Stacey's the principal of Campbelltown Performing Arts High School, uh, which is a public school in southwestern Sydney. 1,100 students uh, at that school, and 40% of them enter the school through audition, and 60% come from the local area. Speak a wide range of languages at home, uh, and it's a very interesting mix of students at the school. And a third of those students gain early entry to university before they've sat their first HSC exam. And Stacey has a reputation in New South Wales education as being a real change agent and someone who thinks pretty deeply about the model of schooling and what it means to educate students for a modern world. Uh, Stacey, um, let's start with what you're trying to change at Campbelltown and your model of reform there. Um, we are really deeply invested in rethinking the very purpose of education. And so the changes that we've made at Campbelltown have really been based on research that we've engaged in both at a global level. What are we hearing about the sort of dynamic and changing future that our young people will be entering? And also research that we've undertaken at the school over a number of years in partnership with Western Sydney University. Uh, and so we're drawing from a really strong evidence base, but we're also, I guess, paving new ground in lots of areas. And what was it about um, traditional schooling or traditional approaches to secondary education that, that made you think we need to find different pathways here? Um, I think the old model of students um, being filled with content knowledge and then regurgitating that in kind of a really traditional assessment models we know isn't good enough for our students anymore. We know that for them to thrive beyond school that they're going to need different skills. They're going to need to be able to collaborate really effectively. We know they're going to need to be able to be critical thinkers. Um, they're going to be need to be ethical in their decision making. And the old model wasn't really allowing us to do that at a deep level. So we've really thought about what are the key principles that make students deeply engaged in learning that matters to them and that's connected to the world beyond school. So let's come and look at uh, what might be different in how you've structured things and the way students are learning and teachers are teaching. But I'm interested in how you bring about a big kind of change program with your leadership team and with your staff. I mean, there'd be plenty of staff at any school who'd say, look, I've been teaching for a long period of time. We all know what a school is. Don't overthink it. Uh, I mean, how do you start that change journey with your team? So part of it is around really identifying what the challenges are, not just at a global or local level, but actually in our own school context and understanding our school context really well. So we collectively have developed a case for change. We've looked at the, the, the future that our students are entering, and we've started to think about the sorts of learning that we think will support students in that process. So rather than it being a top-down approach where the principal says, this is the model that we're going to implement, it's really been around taking some calculated risks gathering evidence as we prototype rapidly some new approaches, using that evidence with our teachers and with our students and with our community to ensure that everyone can see the sorts of change that we want to make, but also capturing their voice. So getting teachers on board is really critical. And I would say that leaders trusting teachers and providing support for them to reshape curriculum and learning experiences is really critical, but also allowing them to have a voice in what that new reform looks like. But the other key players for us have been students 
students and community. So it hasn't just been the educators in our school who've reshaped a really fundamentally different curriculum. Our students have played a role in that. We've run focus groups and surveys and we're constantly seeking feedback and critique from our students about what we're doing. But also we've engaged our community in that process. So let's 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 uh, work through those in stages. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about um, bringing teachers along with you. And I, I think in any change model, there'll be some who get it, who are very excited and very enthused, And they, but, but not everyone will be. Um, the extent to which... Uh, you need to just kind of make it very clear the change is happening or the extent to which you just go with the willing, go with the early enthusiasts and they trailblaze for you? Um, I think there's kind of a middle ground. So we use a model called a nested communities model. So we have a community of practice. They're the people who, in any change that we're making that's fundamentally different, are the people who are in their boots and all, really giving it a good go, testing new approaches in the classroom, working in teams. Everything we do is collaborative, gathering, ev- gathering evidence of impact. We then have a community of engagement. Those people have indicated that they're interested in this work. They're willing to give us feedback on what that looks like, but they're not ready to make a commitment to really prototype and testing something. And the rest of our staff, we consider the community of interest. We keep them updated about what we're doing. We make sure they have a voice uh, in the sorts of changes that we're making, but we don't expect everyone to jump in when we're doing really innovative and transformative work straight away. And I know from past experience that that doesn't work. So we're really making sure that everyone is entering at a point that they're comfortable with when it's something quite radical and different, with a view that eventually it will impact on all of us and all of us have had the opportunity to buy at a point that's most comfortable at any given point in time. People can oscillate between, they can move from the community of engagement into the community of practice, but we're constantly broadening the pool of people who are involved. So this integrated curriculum that we're running in Year 7 at the moment, we ran an expression of interest for teachers to be involved. We needed 20 teachers, which is a lot. We had more than 20 applicants and we're scaling it up next year and we need 40 teachers. So those new teachers who were on board might not have been involved in the first iteration, but they've been critical friends in the process. They've given us feedback. They're aware of what's happening. And so when we sent it out to a kind of second round a year down the track, they're ready to take that leap of faith because they're aware of what that involves. Let's talk about the voice of the student. Uh, um, at times you'd hear some say, well, well, you know, students are there uh, in the classroom. They're there learning, but really Will they have great insight into what their needs are going to be in the workforce or, you know, Australia in the second half of the century? Um, And and I suppose it'd also be others who say, really, um, we shouldn't pay too much attention to their contribution and to their voice. I mean, how do you tap into the student voice and, and what insights are they giving you that you're not picking up elsewhere? Um, I think we underestimate what young people bring to the table, actually. I think this generation of young people are incredibly socially aware. They're connected to the world through social media and other mechanisms in a way that previous generations never were. They're going to have to solve some pretty tricky problems in the future, and they're already invested in those problems and potential solutions. Um, In terms of them understanding the workforce, we're really explicit with them about this is what the research is saying that you need to succeed and flourish beyond school. We're really explicit with them about about them being invested in their own well-being, about strategies that they will need to be resilient beyond school. 
And the thing that they probably have the strongest voice in is um, the things that they're passionate about. So part of what we're trying to do is harness student passion so that we can run projects in our schools where students care deeply about the issues that they're addressing. So whether they be environmental issues or issues around homelessness or issues around refugees, students who care deeply about the work that they're doing are far more likely to be engaged, are far more likely to succeed academically, and are far more likely to feel empowered empowered and know as agents of change that they can make a difference because they've had the opportunity to do that while they're at school. So in terms of harnessing their ideas, we're getting them at the front end in the planning process. So we're talking to them about the sorts of projects we want to do and we're giving them opportunities and forums to provide feedback on those ideas. We're getting constant feedback from them throughout um, the implementation of projects. And just last week, we had a group of students in a planning session with our teachers who are refining projects we ran this year to tell us what worked, what the pain points were, why they didn't like particular elements of the project. You know, if we're really here to service students and if we're really here to power them and we want to, to empower them and we want to engage them, then they have to play a role in that process. But there are still subject outcomes that need to be met and educators are still ultimately the experts experts in the field. Doesn't mean that we silence student voice, but it means that we capture that voice and use it in collaboration with teacher expertise. Part of the challenge of expertise, I think, in education is that everybody went to school. So everybody, you know, there are a lot of dogmatic opinions out there Mm -hmm. and they'll exist with parents in the community as well, who will have as a frame of reference often uh, their own schooling and their own schooling experience, often pretty traditional. So how do you get to bring parents along with the journey that things may have to change a little bit if we're to equip young people for a changing world. So again, we bring them inside the process rather than do this work to them or implement it and expect them to just accept it. They're really deeply invested in the education of their own children. And so we see them as really powerful partners in the process. So this integrated model that I mentioned, we run a community consultation process around that. We don't just tell them this is what we're going to do. We actually run an information session where we say, this is what the research says about what young people will need to be able to do and know to thrive in the future. These are the sorts of things we've done in our school that we know work. Here's the evidence base to indicate that that works. This is our proposal for what we want that model of learning to look like. And then instead of just asking them to accept that, we actually allow them to have a say. So last week we ran that consultation for next year's year seven parents. We had 250 community members in our hall. We had 30 teachers running 30 facilitated discussions and we presented the information, but then we asked for feedback. So those The voices of our community members are captured through recommendations at facilitated table groups. No one in that space didn't have a voice. And then we synthesise that feedback and those recommendations, build it back into the model and explain to our community that this is how we've taken that feedback on board. But then we keep them as partners in the process. So we run exhibition for our projects, for our Year 7 projects. Every term we run an exhibition at the end of the project and we're getting about 400 community members in to have a look at the work that our students are doing. So we're making, we're getting them in at the front end so they know what we're doing and why. We're genuinely harnessing their voice and using their feedback. And then we're being really transparent about how we're traveling with that work. One of the um, articles I like about change management is by John Cotter. And he talks about why change efforts fail. And he says, most change efforts are under communicated by a factor of 10. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, it sounds like you really put a, a great emphasis on communicating very intently with all your stakeholders around these changes. Absolutely. And the communication has to be a two-way process. It can't be us telling, it can't be me as a leader telling teachers what I think they should do or us telling community or students. It has to be around opportunities for those people to develop a trust in us, for them to be able to trust that we have their best interests at heart and we're being transparent and to trust that if they give us feedback that we will use that with integrity. Um, but we also need to make sure that they feel like they're having a voice as well. Sometimes we provide an opportunity to capture voices and we don't harness it or use it effectively. Um, so that trust is really important and the ownership piece is critical. Like I've done things in the past where I haven't really invested in ensuring people have ownership of that work and those things haven't succeeded in the way that what we do now has succeeded. So it's that really deep communication and that really deep ownership that I think that makes a difference. So uh, we, we go to your school what looks different in you know, what students are learning and how they're learning? Sure. Um, the Probably the most radical example is this integrated model that we're currently running in Stage 4. So for us, students are um, in an integrated model where we identified that we wanted to not compromise the integrity of subjects, but we wanted learning to no longer occur in the silo of 10 different subjects for students as they transition to high school. So students are in a subject called STEM, um, typically, they're in a village of about 60 students. There are three teachers attached to each of the three villages, one science, one TAS, and one maths teacher in each of those spaces. Uh, students are undertaking projects over an extended period of time in STEM and in humanities, which is English, HISI, and PDHPE. Those projects really allow students to create a product or a service that addresses either a challenge or an opportunity in the local or global community and the audience is no longer just their teacher and the purpose is no longer just for an assessment mark. So we're empowering students to actually create real products and services that address issues. Um, and within those projects, project-based learning underpins this work, but within those projects it's not just a kind of student-centred approach, although that's at the heart of it. You still walk into classrooms and see explicit teacher instruction. There's still um, assessment for of an as learning embedded into that process. You know, literacy and numeracy is fundamentally important. So that's embedded into the work that students do. Um, but they are working collaboratively in crew to work on, to develop their projects. Um, they're being both supported and assessed against a skills framework that we've developed that uh, enhances the work that they do and is still aligned to syllabus outcomes. Um, so you see them kind of oscillate. Sometimes in that in that village there'll be a plenary session where a subject matter expert is developing um, a lesson or is delivering information to 60 students. Other times you'll see them working in tribes of 20 and there's one teacher attached to each of those tribes throughout the year. Other times they'll be in learning advisory where they're engaged in a wellbeing curriculum, they're setting learning goals, and other times you'll see them working in small groups on projects. So um, just as far as assessment is concerned, I mean, I think one of the challenges that we have as a system, we have in Australia really, is you've got an education system that's set up to test basic skills, you know, literacy and numeracy progression, uh, and knowledge, right? HSC is still very strongly knowledge-based. I mean, some of these skills and capabilities you're trying to develop in students, you know, critical thinking, creativity, communication skills, collaboration skills, uh, the assessments are further behind in its development in those areas. So um, how, how do you assess progress and student improvement in those areas of the curriculum that you're focusing on? 
We've been working in that space for a few years now. We identified that students needed those skills and our pedagogical approaches changed. But when it came to assessment, we found that people were powering down and in some subjects reverting to traditional um, approaches. And when we used some design thinking to really dig deep into that issue, we found that there was no really shared understanding about what those skills entail. So we had to go back to the drawing board and we've developed a framework um, that unpacks what each of those skills are, what the substrands of each of those skills are. We've developed rubrics for so students can move if they're at a kind of emerging level through to mastery of those skills. Um, we provide scaffolded and prompting and independent opportunities for students to demonstrate those skills. We've mapped them back against syllabus outcomes and it's a model that now gets used across our school. We did lots of testing both at our school and across other schools so that we could make sure that there was consistency of teacher judgment and that it was a robust model. And now that framework is part of the assessment for the work that our students undertake. So when our students are doing a collaborative project or where they're completing an individual piece of work, both in terms of formative assessment and summative assessment, that framework is the framework that we draw on to be able to assess where students are at but it's actually about more than assessment. It's about identifying where a student's at and really supporting them and nurturing them and providing opportunities to develop that skill further. When uh, talking of nurturing, uh, I'm interested in the in the well-being opportunities that exist with this approach that you have at stage four. I mean, uh, we, we have, as you know, in the strategic plan, this commitment that every student is known, valued and cared for. I think there's an argument that primary schools are more structured to deliver that with the classroom teacher. And then all of a sudden in year seven, we toss them over the fence into the high school. Lots of subjects, lots of teachers um, can be pretty disorientating. Do you find that the way you're structuring these villages, um, that there provides almost more buttressing and support in a wellbeing sense for students at stage four? Yep, absolutely. That's the case. And we had the same concern that you've just articulated, that students move from primary school into high school, and we were worried that students were falling through the gaps. So we actually have, as part of this model, something called learning advisory. Um, and learning advisory sees students in groups of 15 to 20 with a dedicated learning advisor. And learning advisory is about ensuring every single student is both known and supported as both a learner and as a young person. We're about to scale that up to year nine, so it's our third year that we're moving into. Um, but in learning advisory, our students are in small groups. They meet with their learning advisor every day. Um, they engage in a wellbeing curriculum. They set personalised learning goals for themselves. They curate an e-portfolio of work throughout the year and they evaluate how effectively they've met their personalised learning goals using that evidence base. Uh, they're developing their metacognitive skills in doing that. And then they prepare for student-led conferences where they use uh, the, the work samples they've got, which they've looked at through the lens of those skills and that are aligned to outcomes, to lead a conversation with their parents and their carer with the support of their learning advisor. And they articulate what they've done well, what they think they need to do better at, and what goals they're going to set to get there. And that focus has fundamentally changed the way we know our students. Before we started it, we ran surveys with students and asked them to indicate uh, whether there were teachers in the school who knew them and supported them as both young people and as learners. And I'm embarrassed to say there were students who didn't indicate anyone. Uh, we recently ran focus groups and in every focus group we ran for that cohort of students every single student indicated that there were at least three teachers who knew them both as a young person and as a learner and supported them as a young person and as a learner. It's a great story. 
You're being um, innovative and, and really shaking things up in Stage 4 and Stage 5. You get to Stage 6 in New South Wales anyway. The HSC is waiting for us. Um, and the HSC has been around since 1967. We're doing a curriculum review now. Um, if we ask you how the HSC needs to change, given the innovations you're driving at earlier stages, what do you want to change in the HSC? I think the old model of students, you know, preparing for a test that, as you say, primarily really asks them to recall knowledge is fundamentally the wrong way to identify whether or not students are ready for university or for the world beyond school. I mean, around the world, there are so many ways that that's being done in innovative and more appropriate ways. Um, we can see that there are universities now, for instance, who are granting access to students through early entry, and that requires students to be able to demonstrate that they have a particular skill set to provide evidence around the skills that they bring to a particular course and our students are well positioned to do that. Um, providing students with an opportunity through portfolio entry where they've worked on a sustained piece over an extended period of time that might be aligned to a course uh, that they're interested in we think is really powerful. Um, there's also opportunities for students to engage in a different kind of curriculum I think in stage six. So the opportunity for students for instance to undertake internships that lead them into either university or employment and opportunities beyond school, um, I think, is is one of the things that we need to explore. You, you talk about your partnership with Western Sydney University and academics there have worked with you about um, your approach to, to change. Uh, what's interesting about your student base, about half your students come from the bottom SES quartile. This is the, the part of our community that is least likely to have um, had opportunities of higher education in the past. How important has your work been about creating high expectations for all students and seeing uh, schooling and education as a real way of overcoming socioeconomic disadvantage? It's critical. I mean, the equity piece around education, I think, is the most fundamentally important issue that we could be addressing today. And given that our students come from disadvantaged backgrounds, um, it means that at times particularly traditional means of assessment might not be the most appropriate for them. So ensuring that we have high expectations, but more than that, ensuring that we genuinely provide them with opportunities to engage deeply in their learning and to demonstrate what they know and can do in a vast array of ways, not just through recall of content in an exam, but through being leaders where they're collaborating and leading a particular initiative or giving the opportunity, as our students often do, to pitch a concept to an expert in a field. So our students are regularly at Campbelltown City Council pitching ideas that can be included in plans of management for rejuvenation of local areas. And a number of those products and services have been embedded into our local community. It's where they see the worth of what students from our school and our community have done, that they understand that actually they've got the capacity to do this work. So it just requires not just high expectations, but really clear processes for support for students to be able to really um, step up in a way that perhaps in the past they haven't been able to. You place a great emphasis on student engagement and a belief that engaged students are students who are going to be learning. You also talk a bit about happiness and and 
being mindful of um, students being happy in their engagement. Talk a bit more about how you bring that about in a learning environment. Um, so we talk frequently, and it's it's a kind of, I guess, a, a phrase that's used throughout our school about preparing students for success and happiness at school and beyond school. Um, and I think there's a kind of misnomer around happiness that, you know, happiness is something that everyone should strive to maintain at all times. I think happiness is more about a kind of contentment and a sense of purpose about being purposeful. Um, and so creating opportunities for do, to do, for students to do work that is purposeful, I think, um, leads to a sense of happiness, but also the work, the information that I talked about before in terms of, um, student wellbeing, you know, uh, providing them with strategies so they can be resilient when they face adversity, which is bound to happen, ensuring that they've got really strong connections with their peers and with their teachers and they feel a genuine sense of belonging, not just at school, but also also in their local community, I think, contributes to that. One of the interesting things I, I find about listening to you and, and thinking about ambitious leaders like you is the, the challenge that, that must exist about operating on a dual track. You know, you're trying to uh, reshape the nature of secondary education, reshape what's taught and how it's taught. And in order to do that, you've got to be looking a long way into the future and be quite ambitious. But you run a very complex and demanding ecosystem, you know, 1,100 students, a, a demanding professional staff, high community expectations. It's a seething mass of humanity. And, you know, we know from the research we've done at the department, the operational demands on a principal every day just in being drawn back into the complexity of management can be demanding. How, how do you keep both things going, being the far-sighted, ambitious, reforming leader at the same time as just managing that complex operation every day? Um, my passion is absolutely for education and learning. And so there are probably some administrative things that I don't do as well as I might if I sank all of my time and energy into yeah. that work. Yeah. Sometimes I delegate that. Sometimes I kind of do minimal requirements around that. Um, but in terms of continuing to be ambitious in what we do, it's a really, it's a collective effort. I work with phenomenal professionals inside my school, but I'm also lucky enough to be really connected outside of my school, both at a systems level, but actually with leaders right around the globe who are driving phenomenal change in the education sector. Um, and having the opportunity to be connected to other systems and other leaders, both in New South Wales and beyond, really, I guess, feeds into the work that we do at Campbelltown. Seeing schools that are further down the track than us feeds into our sense about what's possible. Um, but you're right, there are days that I don't get to the teaching and learning as much as I want because... You know, it is a really demanding and challenging position in so many ways. You know, as you say, it's a kind of seething mass of humanity and, and all the complexity that that brings. Um, but it's when I get to go into the classroom and see students doing work that they're really passionate about. It's when I run community consultation and there's 250 members there. It's when we have a planning day like we did yesterday with 10 teachers and we really nut out, or, you know, a fantastic project that students will be undertaking next year. That's what feeds back into my sense of what matters and, and I guess gives me the energy to continue to do that work. Brilliant. Thanks for all the work you're doing. Thanks for your vision and thanks for the tremendous commitment you show to the students and the teachers and your broader community. And thank you for listening to this episode of Every Student. Never miss an episode by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice or by heading to our website at education.nsw.gov.au slash every hyphen student 
podcast. Or if you know someone who is a remarkable innovative educator that we could all learn from, you can get in touch with us via Twitter at New South Wales Education, on Facebook, or email everystudentpodcast at det.nsw.edu.au. Thanks again, and I'll catch you next time.